So just a little bit ago, I got an email from a fellow named Kerry, who is a, um, he's one of the leaders of the lay servants in this district, uh, like me. Um, and he offered some helpful tips. If there's no sound system, be sure to speak up. Uh, and be sure that your attire is respectful, no shorts and t-shirts. Arrive a few minutes early to be sure you have the lay of the land. And remember to make eye contact with the congregation. And I thought to myself, thanks. I can use this. And in the same spirit of helpfulness, I sent back an email to everybody else on the whole chain with my own tips of things that I've learned from a couple of times of doing this. Do not have typhoid fever. <laughs> it's important. Do not introduce yourself as Adirondack lunch meat to make it harder for them to track you down afterwards. Sermons about bowling are generally considered divisive. Don't order pizza delivery unless you order enough for everybody. And reading scripture in Dutch may lessen its impact. <laughs> and just so you know, there is no pizza. I do not have typhoid. And my name is Adirondack Lunchmeat. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray to get started. Father God, we pray that on this Pentecost Sunday, if there is fire to be had in the winds that rush through us, that it be your voice. But also that as we proclaim it from the rooftops, that there are many that hear. And that uh, our voices and what it is that pro we proclaim in your name would be generous with your spirit. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Way, way back, I decided to leave academia and to try and join the commercial business world like a normal human being. And I made the acquaintance of the ceremony called the job interview. Any of you know about this? I was in the last round of these, and I was in a very large office of a senior executive who asked the usual kinds of things one asks in a job interview. And his last question was this, what would represent an obstacle to your success here? And I had to think about this question because I was unprepared for it, as I was unprepared for the interview in general. But I eventually said, people who are tired. And he smiled and he said, good answer. And I got the job at Prentice Hall a college textbook publisher. Now that happened about one year after I went on my own walk to Emmaus, which changed everything for me. And I remember feeling from that walk a, a tremendous sense of spiritual groundedness, an awareness of a source of strength that was beyond, you know, way beyond anything that I could muster on my own. You know, I, I felt like what a dandelion must feel when it sinks its root into an underground water pipe. And it says in its little dandelion way, the power, the infinite power, you know. That was 22 years ago. There's a scripture that talks about this feeling, uh, and I like it a lot. It's a good one. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If not, believe because of the things I do. I'm telling you the truth. Those who believe in me will do what I do. Yes, they will do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. And I'll do whatever you ask for in my name so that the Father's glory will be shown through the Son. Something else from my history. The Draper line is a small family. My family tree is a stick. 
My grandfather was an only child adopted. My father only has one sister, Diane. My mother was one of three, but her brother and her sister died before they got to middle age. I have one brother. His name is Moon. Long story, don't ask. Moon and his wife have no children. And Lois and I raised two Draper sons. Now, just before 2011 came around the corner, my mother passed away. She and my father were divorced, and she died alone. And Moon and I traveled together to the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. to scatter her ashes with only a small private ceremony. And nine months later, almost to the day, my father passed away. Unlike my mother, my father had a lot of people at his memorial service. And I insisted on speaking at that service because I wanted to paint him as he was, as best as I could possibly do that. My Aunt Diane is the only one remaining from my side and from that generation today. And then five years later, on Halloween, our oldest son, Sean, died. It was sudden, and it was brutal, and it was devastating. But again, I felt a personal debt to do my very best to portray him with word paintings at his memorial service. And so just like I did with my father, I labored over that for many days, trying very hard to say all the important things and to say them well. And I know many of you were there to hear that effort, and I will be forever grateful for that. Six months later, I was walking back to my office after talking with a coworker that I had worked with for a dozen years, and we both saw a sad-looking woman from HR sitting in my office who was there to tell me that I was laid off as of that day. Earlier that morning, I had received a congratulatory email celebrating my 12th anniversary with the company. <laughs> Same day. Now, the company had known about Sean, but you know such decisions are never personal, and for the same reason, they rarely involve mercy. And so without feeling much ambition or drive, or much of anything for that matter, I put myself to the task of finding another job, which I really didn't know how to do because my last real job-chasing exercise had been 20 years ago. Eventually, though, this was successful, and I landed another job at a company in a completely different field. And then right after that, I got a text message from Moon, my brother. Yeah, I, I need you to prove that he is my brother. <laughs> and he was asking me how long ago my bout with prostate cancer was. I told him 20 years ago. And yes, that was like right after I took that job at Prentice Hall. And he asked me some more questions. And then after a bit, my brow got furrowed a little bit, and I started asking him questions. And then we got on the phone, and I learned that my only sibling had stage four prostate cancer with a Gleason score that was about as bad as you can get. 
You know, and I'll be completely honest here. After hanging up with him and telling Lois the news, the only thing that filled my head is how much I did not want to have to sit down and craft a eulogy for my brother. My parents were both dead. All but one of my aunts and uncles were dead. One of my two sons was dead. And it appeared that sometime soon, maybe months, my only brother would be dead. And the feeling that washed over me that day, I can tell you what it was. It was not grief. It was not anger. It was not hurt. What I was feeling was tired. Now, I don't tell you this history to make my life seem like a drama. I know full well that I could gaze into the eyes of several people in this room that I know well who have suffered a relentless series of traumas just like ours or worse, much worse. Well, I, I could, but I'm not going to do that because I wouldn't be able to really talk anymore. Instead, I'm telling you this because I just want you to know that I understand exactly what you mean when you say you just feel tired. A lot of people around you do. I know people in my small groups over the years who have described the same feeling. There's a friend in my current small group that found out four or five years ago that he had a terminal disease. And then a few months later, he found out that, like his wife, he also has advanced cancer. A plus, right? <laughs> he said the same thing when he told us, that the news just left him feeling tired. I guess the first thing to remember is that it's okay. It is completely okay, okay, okay to feel tired. We are humans living in a rough world with things happening around us that frankly we are never going to have the wisdom or the perspective of eternity to take them with grace or any measure of equanimity. People who have endured a lot and say that they've been joyous in the Lord throughout, well I guess those people just don't know you well enough to tell you the truth. You know, there are people that I would call heroes in the Bible who have also run to the end of their rope. Here's one, this guy. Therefore, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. If I have sinned, what have I done to you, you who see everything we do? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? And then David, the slayer of warrior giants. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and the storm. And then there's my main guy, my father. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And yet, not as I will, but as you will.
or to capture that same scene as it was sung in a song in Jesus Christ Superstar went, then I was inspired, now I am sad and tired. After all, I've tried for three years, seems like 90. Why then am I scared to finish what I started? What you started, not what I started. You know, this is true for the best of us. Moral and spiritual exhaustion at some point in our lives is almost inevitable. And so then, where's our hope? Well, there's this. And when the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building, and then like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. Take a look at that for a minute. Reread that. Remember who these people were. Remember that these were people that were in a locked room hiding after the crucifixion. They had been walking around in a daze for several days. They had been following this guy, this savior, this one hope, and then they put him on a cross and they killed him. But somewhere, somehow, they recovered the fire in their bellies. It was as though the loss, the events that they could not control or change or deal with or even understand were essential for their eventual transformation. Richard Rohr describes this in a beautiful book called Falling Upward. He says, the way down is the way up. The way down is the way up. There's a thought. So what to do? What are we to do with this? I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about practical things, useful things that when you come to that low point and you feel like you're made out of straw and when the tank runs dry and you've got nothing left to fight with your own power, the first of these three things is Come out with it. First thing to do is to drop the stiff upper lip and to confess to the people that you know that you are at bottom and you don't know how to pull out of it on your own. Tell people how you're feeling, even if what you feel is numb and empty. Many will probably not know what to say. Most people will probably not completely understand how you feel. That doesn't matter. That's not even really the point. The point is to have the humility to let that burden be shared. And if you say, I don't want to weigh people down with my troubles, I'm going to come right back and say, how dare you be so arrogant that you will not stoop to need help? It is no gift to anyone to suffer alone. 
as the scripture says, or I'm pretty sure it's a scripture, I couldn't find it, I think it's in Romans, Jesus Christ hath no love for Superman. <laughs> what sharing your low point will do is it'll slow the free fall. Descent into a deep well can be startlingly fast. And if unchecked, your speed will keep you from finding purchase on the walls. But if you reach your hands out early, it'll slow or check your descent. And it will give you an awareness that you have not fallen nearly as deeply as you think you have. And on another aspect of coming out with it is to allow yourself some time in this state. There's that beautiful prayer from John Wesley that includes the lines, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. I love that prayer. Gives me the opportunity for rest. It may be that this Time is needed for God to reach you in a transformational event. And if you are tired, then rest in his presence. Rest. Rest. There's no need to get up right away from this low spot until you've learned what it has to teach you. Okay, the second thing is to dig the well deeper. We've all had the experience of putting our shovel into dry ground, ground that was once fertile and soft, but now it feels parched and hard, you know, especially around here in August. There doesn't seem to be any sustenance there at all. But you push the shovel in and you dig. And you'll get tired when you dig to the depth of your own strength, and that's when you'll want to stop. But that's also when you'll dig further. And you and I all know what eventually will happen. You will dig deeper and deeper, further than you've ever dug a hole in your whole life. And then all of a sudden, you'll see water flowing around your shovel. You will have hit that underlying water table. And when you see that water flowing around the shovel, two thoughts will cross into your mind. The first of these will be a sense of overwhelming relief that your thirst has been quenched. You will feel strength suddenly now where just before the dryness and exhaustion was there, the only thing that was there before. The second thing that will cross your mind is, is that this deep pool of water was there the whole time. You had forgotten and you had despaired, but it was there the whole time. I'm going to show you a picture of a well. It's called a step well. It's in India. Isn't that amazing? There's a little person down there. Get the size. Those are walking steps. There are some people in India who sure know how to dig deeper. I admire their faith. I also have to admire their willingness to carry down a five-gallon bucket and to lift up 40 pounds of water up all those steps. I myself have personally walked down depths that far to find my 
uh, comfort in God's strength, but in my case, I left my load at the bottom. You know, as some practical advice, if you find yourself in a depleted state, a recommended recipe for digging deep is to throw yourself into a project or a cause that is much bigger than yourself. Something so big or so hard that you can at most make a small contribution. Nothing you can declare as a personal victory. You know, it's counterintuitive to take on something you cannot possibly hope to fix or to set right on your own strength, especially when you are drained, and yet be refreshed by that. But I assure you, this works. It works. And for those of you who have devoted yourself to some cause or some ministry that seems to be moving too slowly and you're tired of banging your head against the wall about it and you just want to bail, I urge you to dig the deep well. Dig that well deeper. And stick with it. Some very worthwhile things take a very long time and that does not make them any less worthwhile. And finally, the third thing to do is, is to watch for miracles. Remember that though you are tired, God is not. And he has some things that he wants you to see, things that he can do when you can do nothing right now. And I'll tell you a story. After Sean departed from us, some dear friends from Indiana drove down from Indiana to come to the memorial service. And they have a son, a little younger than Sean, by about a year, who was living in North Dakota at the time. And we've known him all his life. And almost on the heels of our tragedy, their son was on the verge of taking his own life. But because of Sean, our friends were in tune. And they leapt with urgency and strength to intervene. And we walked with them through that whole terrifying period. And I am thrilled to tell you that that rescue was successful. He survived, partly because Sean did not. And so these are flowers on Sean's grave that we cherish. It's no small miracle. And I will also tell you that my brother, Moon, crusty badger that he is, was not optimistic about seeing 2019. Well, here it is, it's June 2019. And though the chemo has slowed him down more than he wants, and he complains a little about the general ordeal of cancer, he is very much alive to talk about it. And he is nowhere near the end stages I feared he would be, in fact, in a couple weeks, he's going to take off for, with his wife to Western England to go off grid for about a month. Bless his heart. I don't know what the long-term prospects are for him. Nobody on earth does. But I've jotted this one down in my little notebook of miracles, too. So I've told you three things. I've told you to 
come out with it, to dig the well deeper and to watch for miracles. When I was trying to impress upon that executive at Prentice Hall about the fire in my belly, you know, even then I knew that the fire wasn't mine, not of my own making. And I do have to remind myself of that from time to time, especially when I have walked a spiritual wasteland for a while and I'm empty of anything left of my own. But that's when I remember that the fire in the belly is still there, planted very deep by somebody who loves me very much and who has provided me with everything that I need. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the fire. We thank you for the winds that blow through us. Your Holy Spirit replenishes, motivates us, gets us out of ourselves, and teaches us that there are greater things, greater things to see, greater things to do, greater things to visit with your name on our lips. And in this day of Pentecost, we celebrate the fact that you have come as promised and left with us a companion until the end of the age. Amen.